This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. The rivers that we fly fish and the fish we catch and release are a gift. They are a fragile gift and require our attention. That's why I appreciate fly fishers like Dave Cumling, who devote a lot of thought and effort to protecting our rivers and our fish. Today we're inviting Dave back to our podcast to address an important topic, and a hot topic at that. It's about the key to fish survival with catch and release fly fishing. Uh, Dave, welcome back to Two Guys in a River. Well, thanks, Steve and Dave. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be back. So you've been a fly fishing guide for 40 years, and you were also instrumental in starting the Whirling Disease Foundation, and then you also accepted Bud Lilly's invitation to be part of the Warriors in Quiet Waters. Tell us a little bit about these roles and what you currently do for Trout Unlimited. Well, I was one of the members of the Whirling Disease Foundation, which sprang from the announcement that Whirling disease was the cause of a big decline in the rainbow population in the Madison, a decline of over 80% of the rainbows linked to whirling disease. We started a Bozeman-based foundation to help facilitate research. We sponsored a symposia where everybody came together and developed research plans and to kind of move the needle on understanding whirling disease and what we could do about it. And then I went to work uh, for Toronto Limited working on whirling disease and aquatic invasive species issues. The Warriors and Quiet Waters deal was an invitation from Bud, who had been approached by a couple of the folks with the uh, talking about starting Warriors and Quiet Waters here in Bozeman. Okay. And Bud contacted me because he was pretty much out of the business, and I was still involved in the mainstream of the business, so I knew mm-hmm. guys, fly shop owners, had more contacts, and, and it suited me pretty well what, what they were talking about doing it. So I got involved with the Whirling Disease Fund, or the Wares and Quiet Waters okay. uh, Board of Directors and then Operations. I was the Volunteer Director of Operations, so I arranged places to fish, found the guides, all the equipment, and I did that for about the first four years or so. And then I've since, you know, gotten involved in Charter Limited's Veteran Service Partnership activity, and I still maintain a very strong relationship with Wares and Quiet Waters. I'm an advisor. And I am uh, also a guide, instructor, mentor for their programs. I have one coming up here, a guide mentor on uh, a Wares and Quiet Waters fishing experience. Yeah, that's great. So what we want to talk about today is the key to fish survival for catch-and-release fly fishing. And I'm sure there's a complex of factors that keep fish healthy. I mean, we hear a lot about keeping fish wet. We hear about barbless hooks. But I know there's something else you've identified as the main factor which determines whether or not the fish you catch and release will survive. Uh, Dave, what is that factor? All those things that you described, I think, are, are, can be part of, of increasing the, the fish, the trout survival from being caught. But in talking to the fisheries biologists that I know, people that are professionals in uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, Colorado Wildlife, Idaho Fish and Game, but folks I've worked with on whirling disease stuff that I've gotten to know pretty well. One of the things they're almost universally telling me that one of the most important factors is what I call the angling interval. 
And I don't think I'm the first person to ever call it that. But it's the amount of time that the fish is played, from the time you hook it until the time you release it. And like any athlete, use a, a marathon runner as an example. When you put your body under duress, like in an extreme situation like that, which is what a trout is in when you hook them, they're fighting mm -hmm. for their life. So if you do that to a, to a marathon athlete, when they finish a marathon, 26 miles, 385 yards, they absolutely have to cool down in an orderly manner. If they don't, they'll get acidosis. The lactic acid that builds up from that exertion can literally poison them. So they don't just finish 26 miles, 385 yards, and sit down and go home. The this, this same is true of trout. So you have the trout in a life-threatening you know, situation. They're fighting for their lives, so they're building up a great deal of lactic acid. If, if you don't play them quickly and give them a chance to recover, there is some likelihood that they, even though they can swim away, like a marathon runner can walk away from a marathon and the trout can swim away and then succumb to acidosis and die shortly after. So the angling interval, angling interval, the amount of time, is the critical factor to trout travel. Now, interrelated with that, of course, is the use of barbless hooks. You can get them on hook faster. And then the amount of time out of water, which is where the keep them wet thing comes in, that's a factor, too. You just can't hold a fish in the water forever because they don't survive there. That's not their medium. So these things are all related. And uh, one of the things I'm concerned about with the keep them wet message is that there's a lot of attention focused on literally keeping fish wet. You see the photos with water dripping off the fish, and that's that's important, the time out of water, but it is, it is not more important than the angling interval. And Quite often you will see people, especially if they've caught fish on light tippets and small flies, that play fish, what I call two-hand, where they don't have enough strength left to do anything. You can just pick them up and, and release them. And I wow. totally don't believe in that. I, need, I think you need to play a trout well, to the point where it still has some life in it. I am uh, a big advocate of using nets. But anything you can do to shorten up the interval will help the trout survival. Yeah. And part of that part of that is time out of water. Okay. Clearly. So specifically, what can fly fishers do to keep the interval between hooking a trout and releasing it to a minimum? Well, the first thing I tell people is a joke when I'm guiding, but it's true. You don't need to teach them how to swim, Steve. <laughs> Let's get them back in the water. They already know how to do that. So I tell people just to get them landed fairly quickly. You want to have some of that fun. You don't want to slide them across like you're sliding in a tuna on a tuna boat. But there are a lot of people that believe that playing a fish to hand is some kind of an achievement. I do not. I think that they need to be played so you can net them. And I use a net all the time, which is not a universal thing amongst anglers. Lots of people fish and never use a net. And then I'll get people that'll tell me, well, I don't use, I don't need a net as if that's some form of an achievement. I, I don't believe that. I think you should use a net because you can get them, you can shorten up the interval a lot by using a net. Yeah. And I, you saw me, I've gotten to the point now where I'm using a kind of larger than average landing net. I've got a fish pond, long handle mm -hmm. guide net that I use for my personal fishing, which allows me to shorten up the interval even more. So I'm big on using nets. I'm big on getting the fish landed when they're still 
uh, green, as I say, and they still have some yeah. life. I also believe that a fish that you've had to play for a while, especially, needs to get some assistance. You just can't take them right off the hook and let them go. Mm-hmm. Even if you face them into the current briefly and let them go. Yeah. I think if you've played them for a while, you need to hold them into the current, out of the sill, long enough to where they're swimming. You can feel their energy coming back, and they'll literally start to thrash and want to swim out of your hand. And that fish, I feel like, if I let that fish go, that I've reoriented, reoriented into the current, it's swimming so hard I can't hold on to it any longer, that fish has got high probability for survival. Yeah. So all those things taken together, you know, shortening an interval, using a net, the keep them wet part, definitely you want to keep them, you want to minimize minimize the time that they're out of the water. So my, my routine now is I get them netted. I'm losing my eyesight, so i got to slip my sunglasses off. I use readers. You saw my deal. So I've got the fish in the net. I, I take my sunglasses off, get my readers in place, and it just takes seconds to do that. And then I go to the net, and I release that fish, and I keep them in the net and down in the water. The long-handled net lets me do that. So if I'm going to take a picture, if I want a grip and grin selfie, then I get my, well, that fish is in the net and down in the water, and it's breathing water, if you would. Then I get my camera out. My camera's in my pocket. It's on a lanyard. I get the camera out, turned on. When I'm all set, then I reach in there, I get the selfie, give it a kiss, and then put it back. If I'm guiding, then I take your fish off the hook, keep it in my net with one hand, in the water, face into the current, and then I get my camera out. And when we're ready, okay, Steve, you ready? Put your rod down. Dave, you're ready. Reach in there and get the fish, and we'll take a couple pictures. And then I always do that with my net underneath the fish, out of the frame. So if you drop it, I got some chance of catching it again, yeah. and most of the time I can. Yeah. Um, and so once in a while I drop one, that, one gets dropped that I can't get. And yeah. that. But I, all those things added together, one, I know that the interval's been shortened, the fish has not got a great deal of lactic acid, lactic acid buildup because you landed it quickly. We got the hook out fast. Fishing's good. I'm catching a lot. Then I catch bars. Um, I don't always pinch barbs unless it's legally required because I can land them faster on a barbed hook. I mean, I can put the heat to a fish on a barb and get them in faster than I can on a barbless hook. I have nothing against barbless, and I fish that way a lot, but that that is not a big significant key to survival. It is to getting them off the hook. That's where, that's where it comes. But you look at modern hooks now, mm-hmm. modern hooks like the... The Dairigis, Daiichis, uh, Tiemkos, all those, those barbs are so much finer. If you've got, you guys tie, right? I do, so yeah. Mm-hmm. If you've got old mustads in your box, yeah. the, the barb on a mustad hook is brutal. Yeah, I yes, mean, right. compared to the modern hook. Yeah. So the modern hook, even with a barb on a Tiemko or Dairiki, Daiichi, those things come out pretty easy. It's yeah. way easier to get those off than it is fighting yeah. a big old mustad, 96, 72, out of a trout. I mean, so I don't really subscribe to the fact that you have to pinch everything because yeah. you can get them off barbed hooks pretty fast. So all added together, that's yeah. my my approach. And I, yeah. I know that the survival rate of the fish that I catch and release is mm-hmm. quite high. Yep. And talking to the biologists, they will tell you that most catch and release fish will survive and that it typically does not increase the mortality 
per, or percentage in the population, the percentage of fish that die, much beyond, if at all beyond, the rate of natural mortality. Because it, it comes right down to it. Mother nature is harsh. Yeah. And, and my understanding is that in many situations, most stream situations, she's killing 20, 25, even 30% of the fish naturally. Wow. And, and that good catch and release techniques doesn't, doesn't increase mortality rates much beyond that. Yeah. And, and uh, so you just, if you left them all alone and never fished for them, Mother Nature kills a ton of them. And, yeah. and I don't think a lot of anglers uh, realize that. Disease, overwinter mortality, um, you know, uh, confrontations between or combat between fish. They fight, they chew on each other. It's, it's, a, it's not a friendly place no. for an animal, the wild. And so if we do what we do, then our impact is going to be minimal to non-existent if we do all those things. Yeah. So we're talking today with Dave Cumling about the key to fish survival for catch and release fly fishing. Before we continue our conversation, here's a brief word about our sponsor, Dr. Squatch Soap Company. Steve, I'm looking forward to Christmas this year. Why is that? Because for the first time, with the exception of last year in our Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, that, that New York Times bestseller, but with the exception of that, <laughs> I now know what to get all the guys in my family and the guys in my life. I think I know, but what is it, Dave? It's Dr. Squatch Men's Soap. Absolutely. And they have it in gift boxes. You can get a gift box, a customized cigar box of soaps. They have a shave kit. Uh, it's the subtle way to say, you stink, <laughs> along with Merry Christmas. <laughs> and actually, the guys will like you after you send them yes, to Yes, they will. Send them this gift, or when they open it up. Oh, I know. At it... first, their face may fall, and they'll go... Oh, soap, how nice. But then they'll use it and they'll go, thank you, Steve. Oh, yes. If they like it half as much as we do, I mean, we, we love it. And, hey, the cigar boxes are cool. My grandkids uh, have kind of taken those away and they play with them. But great product, it really is. I don't have grandsons, so I send them to my sons, and, and they love them as well. So go to drsquatch.com, put in the promo code two guys just two and g-u-i-s and you'll receive a 20 percent discount that's the number two with the word guys do it today all right we're talking with dave cumling about the key to fish survival for catch and release fly fishing i just wanted to follow up dave on the net issue i generally always use a net but in some of the real small streams when you're catching six to eight inch brook trout is it necessary to have a a net then because you're they're, they're so quick to hand and I've always wondered about that and sometimes I take my net sometimes I won't what are your thoughts on that I honestly I bring some fish to hand if they're real small and just take them off they're they're still slippery slimy active little buggers and even if you they're small and you get them in quickly you still end up dropping some you slip out they get slipped out uh slip off but I just use one. I, I even try to get the little fish in there, and and it's much easier for me to control. So, do I do I condemn somebody who doesn't use a net on small streams and small fish? Absolutely not. If you've shortened the interval and you get the fish off fast and you stabilize them in the current and you let them go, you're essentially the same place that I am using my net. I just know that even the small ones, if they're still pretty lively, they're hard to hold on to. Yeah. And, and I don't 
I think the dam if you drop two or three of those on dry ground, then they're worse off than if you had them in a net. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a habit that you get into, and yeah. our net it's like a waiting staff. Yeah. I use one all the time. You saw me. Yeah. A lot of people don't like them because they're not convenient. Using a net on a little fish is not convenient. But the fact is, if you are in the habit of doing it and you have a routine, it's not inconvenient to use a net. So I, I, I advocate for them because here's the situation. We've talked about this before. It takes 21 days of repetitive behavior to establish a habit, right? You can read the psych articles about that, and that's pretty uniformly agreed upon. But it's, it's a three-week process at least yeah. to get a habit going. So if you're in a habit of using a net and you use it all the time, then you're using it for all your fish. And, yeah. and you, at some point, there's going to be a, a fish or two that you've helped out by using the net. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my sermon for the day on nets. Yeah, I use it. I try to use it all the time. That's good. Um, so, and I think it's a good habit to get into. The other thing that it'll do, even on those little fish, two things that happen. Once in a while, you hook yourself when you're farting around with those little ones. And the other thing is, even sometimes a smaller fish, you end up tearing up a fly or breaking off a, a fly because you're trying to wrestle with that little fish. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, that's my approach to them. Put them in the net, then you don't have that problem. You drop them, they're in the net still, so on. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, you talked about your fish pond net. I, I have a fish pond nomad that I really like as well. It doesn't have quite as long a handle as yours, but uh, it's got the big, you know, the big basket. But uh, you know, if somebody's going out to buy a net, what would you suggest? And I'm, I'm thinking especially about the, you know, the, the basket. What kind of materials do you want in that basket? Yeah, I, I think any net that you would use would be helpful. I have that real long, long handle one. A lot for myself, but mostly for guiding. Because mm -hmm. to be honest with you, you get a lot of people that don't know what to do with the fish at the end, and and they're not really playing the fish right, you know. Yeah. So the long handle net gives me a better chance of getting them, especially if they're seeking a picture. Um, it just increases my odds to actually get the fish if I got another foot and a half on my handle. So that's one of the reasons I have that. But I think if you have any net hanging on the back. You're uh, you're ahead of the game. Yeah, I think that pretty much the common lore and knowledge is now is that the ghost net materials are less obtrusive. They bother fish less. Mm -hmm. um, they just don't see them. And I, when I use the the ghost net, the, the clear uh, white looking clear stuff, I feel like the fish don't don't spook off that quite as much as they do off the darker net materials. My boat net is is the rubber material, but it's black. And I'm going to try and find a clear net material to replace the black. I've got an extendable handle, big boat net. It's got black rubber mesh on it. In a boat, I'm not quite so worried about it because that one, I've got that boat and fish under control. But when I'm fishing myself, I want that clear boat net material. I feel like that bothers the fish less the rubber material is way easier to get flies out of um isn't as abrasive to the fish so that's the thing i look at the size the opening um you gotta have a size big enough to handle the fish you're gonna get i mean sometimes i see people fishing out here and they've got these what i would call these small eastern brook trout nests you can't get 20 inch fish in them 
Yeah. I mean, it yeah. just they don't fit. And, and so that's really not enough if you're going to fish out here. It's better than nothing. But you try to line up a 20-inch or a net that's built for 14 inches, it's hard to get them in there. And so what does that do? That increases the interval because you're farting around trying to line that fish up. And it, it just doesn't fit. So you got to have a net that's big enough for what you're fishing for. So that's kind of where I end up on nets. This has been really terrific, Dave. So one final question. What is, I mean, off the top of your head, what's the lifespan of, say, a cutthroat in the Yellowstone River or a, or a brown in the Madison? I mean, what is the... I'm not entirely sure about that. That's a really good question. I've asked that uh, of biologists a couple times. I think it's rare for them to live much beyond six, seven years. Um, I could be wrong about that, but they don't live for 15 years. I know that for sure. Yeah, and I, I think, think it would be a really old fish if they reached to 10 years. Well, Dave, this has been so helpful. Thanks so much. And I hope that, that all of our listeners, as, as uh, Dave Getz and I, will just keep working on on just lessening that that interval between hooking and, and releasing the fish. So, hey, thanks again. This is some terrific insights. Yeah, you bet. Really appreciate yeah, well, it. Well, thanks for covering this topic. I think it's, it's important, and as I said before, that keep them wet hashtag has become really popular. Yeah. And I think it's a good thing, but we need to we need to expand that message some, and, and that's, yeah. uh, that's what I hope we did today. So good. thanks for the opportunity. I enjoyed it really was a helpful uh, interview, wasn't it? Uh, Dave is so wise on all this. He's just really good at what he yeah. does. You can see why he's been successful yeah. professional guide for all oh, those I years. Know. And we really do want to care for uh, the environment, for the, the rivers that we fish and the fish that we catch. That, that's important. Well, it's time now for great stuff from our listeners. This is from Lincoln on our piece, Know Your Pattern, the H&L Variant. Now, that appeared over a year ago, so we're glad it's still being read. And this is what Lincoln writes. He said, I never heard of this fly until you brought it up in your podcast. After numerous times mentioning it in several podcasts, I found this fly in a fly shop, and I bought a few of them, and this fly simply works. Thank you for suggesting it. And then in a previous comment, Dwayne, a veteran fly tire from Oregon, said, Tied with synthetic material wings and tail, it's easier to tie and far more durable. I use white macrame, and it's a great fly on streams in Oregon. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, Lincoln it fishes the Iowa Driftless, and Dwayne and Oregon have had success with this Colorado fly. So Dave Cumling, in fact, our interview this time, I think he uses it as an imitation in Montana for the crane yeah, fly. Yeah, so it, it's very, very versatile. It uh, was founded in, or the, the person who tied it first, I think, was out in Colorado. Yeah, it was Colorado. And they use it actually as an imitation for the green drake, but they that's also right. use it as a general yeah. attractor pattern. Yeah, interesting stuff. Hey, that's going to do it for today. What have you done to shorten the interval between hooking a fish and releasing it? You can share your insights by commenting on this podcast link at twoguysinariver.com. What tips or suggestions do you have for shortening the interval between hooking a fish and releasing it? Thank you again, as we say each time, for referring our podcast to whether it's your TU chapter, fly fishing club, colleagues, friends. Uh, we just have grown, and that's not because of our genius marketing, but you're a great referral. So thank you so much for that. We also would love to hear your ideas for the podcast, new episodes, ideas, different 
ways of different angles of, of different topics. So please uh, send those to us. Also, one more thing, if you haven't yet purchased our book, The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists, Life is Short, Catch More Fish. Christmas is coming up at some point. So get a stack of or those Or birthday's things. coming up. Yeah, get, right. a, get a stack of those babies. <laughs> Buy them for your friends. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing.